but we have started to gather in person again as a church on Sunday nights. And Glenridge Church have been so kind to just open up their space to us. I think there's about five churches meeting in their church building at the moment, which is just such a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God. Churches not competing with one another, but partnering together for the kingdom and the gospel in the city of Durban. But one of the highlights for us as we've started together again has been meeting the new babies who've been born during lockdown, you know, either just before or over the last seven or eight months. And it's just so special getting to see these instant children. We've missed months of their lives, but now we get to spend time with them. And our daughter, August, is one of them. She's eight months old now. Um, she's growing up so quickly. And she had her first ever church service about four weeks ago. And it was just so cool. I got a photo of me holding her during worship. It's something I'll try and keep for the rest of my life. But Shell took her in and went and sat down with a group of others and babies. And August, when she saw these other children, got so excited, her feet started to kick. And she literally let out a squeal of joy to be together with these kids, her new friends. Now, she's still little, uh, but like those other babies, she's learning a ton and growing up so fast. She literally is just over eight months old. She's got two little teeth sticking up from the bottom of her gums. She's about to crawl, we think. Um, and just watching her learn and grow and develop has been such a privilege. Um, she uh, has already grown out of the three to six month onesies that we got her. They're like little pedal pushes on her legs, just tight around her chest and arms. And it is so weird to see these things that once like she drowned in, they were just way too big for her. Now are too tight on her. And for Shell and I, as we watch her growing up, there's this reality that as much as we want to enjoy this and we want to love her and care for her and protect her, at the same time, we've got to coach her and develop her and help her grow to be the woman that God has called her to be. And my job as a dad is both, you know, to love her and to coach her so that one day when she grows up, she's ready to leave home. She, she's trained. She's self-sufficient. She's able to do what God has got for her to do. And our hope is that she'll follow Jesus and, and run with his purposes in this world. Um, but that actually in that time, in that moment of her life, that she's got everything she needs. Her toolbox is full that she can go and live her life. Now, if she gets to my age, 34, and she's still living at home with mom and dad, and we still have to feed her and change her, and she's still in nappies and we're still bathing her every day, then, you know, either we have failed or something is terribly wrong. And when Paul writes this letter from jail to the church in Philippi, he's obviously far away from them. He loves them. He misses them. He's been praying for them. But he's writing to them, not knowing if he will see them again and expecting that he'll probably be martyred quite soon. And he knows that he has taught them well, like a good father, like a good parent. He's prepared them and trained them. He set them an example. He's encouraged them. He's taught and coached them. And in his absence, he knows that they've got everything that they need, that they are completely trained to do what they need to do. They can live out their faith. They can fulfill the purposes of God. Uh, they don't need Paul around. And as I share that, I want to ask you as you watch this, are you mature in the faith? Or are you well trained to live out the purposes of God? Do you know what your job is as a Christian as you kind of end this video and go to work and go to the places you go around the city? And if I'm not around, if your life group leader or a Christian mentor isn't around, do you know how to do the things to, to live out your faith? And I just want to say, if not, that's absolutely fine. That's not a problem. 
But as a church, we exist to help you to grow as a disciple of Jesus. And here Paul the Apostle, in this passage, is writing to encourage them all about these things. So let's read from verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Let's stop there for a second. Paul is saying that in his absence as he's far away in prison, the church in Philippi individually and together needs to continue to follow Jesus and work out their ministry. You know, that, that is their responsibility. Paul can't baby them. You know, he doesn't have the technology to. He's far away. He's in prison. They need to do the stuff. They, they can't wait for him or someone else. Now, there's a reality for each of us as Christians. We must always rely on Jesus and be following Jesus as our ultimate leader. But we can't do the same thing with human leaders, leaders around us, you know. We can't rely on them for everything. The, the goal of our faith is to grow into a healthy Christian maturity and to live out our faith, to be able to feed ourselves and change ourselves and minister to others and advance God's kingdom. And Paul says it this way. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I, I think probably the first thing that goes off on your dashboard is the words fear and trembling. Paul isn't saying that we should live scared as Christians. And I think we've probably all heard those horrible caricatures of the past of Christians as living in fear and living scared of God and hell and judgment and all sorts of things. That's not what's going on here. What this means is we live in the fear of God. In the book of Proverbs, we see that the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of faith and walking with God begins with the fear of God. And maybe another way of saying that that may, might make more sense is to live humbly, filled with awe of God. Paul means that we should be pretty intentional about working out our salvation or living out our faith and to take it seriously because of God's glory and power and beauty. Maybe another way to illustrate this. I watched the show The Last Dance during lockdown. If you missed it, it's a really good sports documentary which I think whether you like, have ever followed basketball or not, you would get a lot out of. But in it, we see the story of Michael Jordan, the GOAT, the best basketball player to ever exist. Sorry, LeBron fans. And also the 1990s Chicago Bulls, who are arguably the best basketball team of all time. And we get to see them on the court and behind the scenes, what was going on with the team in the 90s over those years where they won six championship rings. And we see this team are just at the peak of their careers. So this is a special moment in sporting history. Michael Jordan goes from a little-known Chicago basketball player to probably the best-known athlete in the world. There's actually a scene in the show where he goes onto the Oprah show and Oprah says he's the best-known person on the planet at the time. I don't know if that's true or not, but he was up there. But a part of this documentary, which is interesting, is the huge entourage around them, just all of the people that are working with Jordan and the team to help them to do what they do. And they loved it because they got to be in the presence of greatness. You know, they are with Jordan. They are with the Bulls, Pippen and Rodman and all of these people. They get to watch the glory of the Bulls play basketball. They get to play a small part of the story of this team winning championship after championship, be part of the hype and the excitement of all of this. So they worked hard. They worked with fear and trembling because they wanted to do well to serve Jordan and the Bulls. You know, they worked with humble awe and wonder because they wanted to please the team, because they wanted to be part of and worthy of 
being what they were a part of. And that's exactly what's going on here in Philippians 2 with the church and Jesus. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, maybe just a a bit of a pastoral aside. Uh, I know some people at the moment are bored of their faith. You know, lockdown's been hard. A lot of us are lethargic physically, emotionally, spiritually. And if you're feeling bored of your faith tonight, and you hear me say this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, you might be going, okay, cool, Grant, whatever. But if that is you, if tonight you're bored of your faith, it's probably because you've lost sight of the bigness of God and the glory of God and the power of God and the beauty of God and the creativity of God and the mercy and grace and love of God. You've lost sight of how good he is. And I'd love to encourage you that that your duty as you work out your salvation is to fill yourself with awe and wonder again at the glory of him. I don't know how you connect with God best, but whatever that looks like for you, do that. You know, if, if that's in your room, Bible, worship, music, prayer, that's great. If that's getting with people and talking about Jesus, that's great. If that's going into nature, doing a hike, or going to the beach and watching the ocean or sunrise or sunset, if that is eating something delicious or listening to music and just communing with God in prayer, do that and ask Him to flood you again with a sense of His glory. Read some of the passages about the bigness of God. Colossians chapter 1, some of the Psalms, some of the passages in the prophets. Read them and be struck again by the glory of God. So that's the fear and trembling part. But the first part of that verse says, work out your own salvation. There's a personal responsibility there, your own salvation. Now, I want you to notice there that it says work out, not work for. That's a really big difference. To work for means to earn something. But our salvation is a free gift that Jesus has given us. It's not something we've earned, something he's earned for us. It's something he has worked for for us which means we don't have to pay for it. He already has, and you don't pay for something twice, which means that our salvation is never about what we do. It's entirely about Jesus and what he has already done. Now, again, another pastoral aside, I think this is really important. I think one of the things I see as a pastor again and again is that you might know this truth, but you don't believe it, or it hasn't dropped down. You might be able to quote Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 10. You might be able to share exactly what I have and articulate it better than me. But if this truth hasn't dropped from your head down into your heart and into our lives, then it's going to affect how we live. It's going to affect what we do and don't do. And one of the things I see in my life and in so many lives as I speak to people is that we are constantly trying to work for our salvation, whether that's in a spiritual sense or some other sense. You know, we're trying to prove ourselves. We're trying to show that we are enough or can do enough. We're trying to show, you know, to earn someone's love or to earn approval, whether that's from God or people, whether that's at work or financially, whether that's in a relationship or or however. Even with ourselves, we're trying to prove ourselves and earn our salvation. We're trying to work for our salvation. And if that's you watching this today, please, whatever it takes, part of working out your salvation means that you need to Beat this truth into yourself that Jesus has done it all. He's paid it all. You don't have to work for God's love. You don't have to earn your salvation. It's been freely given to you. So receive it and live in it and enjoy it. In Jesus, salvation is yours. 
forgiveness of sins is yours. The new identity in Jesus is yours. You know, you are God's son or daughter in Christ. You've been washed clean of sin. You've been set free from the power of sin. Shame and guilt has been taken away. You've got a clean slate, a fresh start in Jesus. Now, in light of all of that, work out your salvation. Work it out. And let me explain what that means. This year, I think all of my lives have changed a lot. But maybe the biggest way my life has changed is that this year I became a dad. So I got a new title. My identity has changed. I'm a, I'm a father now. And it's been the best thing. August recently has started to say dada. I don't think she necessarily knows what it means, even though Shell and I have said it a lot to her. But she says it and every time my heart melts, you know, my little girl is saying my name. So I love this new title. And I don't need to work for that title, you know. There's nothing I have to do to be a dad. I, I am a dad. You know, I have the baby. I am a dad already. Nothing is going to change that. But I can be a good dad or a bad dad. You know, I can be a present dad or an absentee dad. I can be a dad who invests into my little girl or who just is really passive and disengaged. But either way, I'm still her father. And I don't need to work for my fatherhood. But I do need to work out what it means to be a good dad to August if I want to love her well and train her and coach her and raise her up as a young woman well. I do need to work that out because this is all new to me. I've never been a dad before, even though I've watched dads, I've had conversations with dads, I've read books about being a dad. This is new to me and I need to work this out. I need to learn how to do this thing. And that is my responsibility alone. No one else will ever be her dad. You know, no one else will ever have the privilege or the responsibility of being her father. It's, it's my job alone. So to work out parenthood, what Chell and I have done is we put a bunch of things in place in our lives. We went to an antenatal course before August was born to learn about the birthing process and you know, how to raise this little girl the, the first few months of her life. We got the What to Expect When Expecting app and the Wonder Weeks app. We read books. We spoke to friends. We got her room ready. We bought toys and clothes and a cot and a bunch of things. You know, and then she was born. When all of that was done, she was born and it became official. We were parents. She was here. And we had to adjust, adjust our lives entirely. Everything changed when she arrived. We had to put a bunch of new habits in place in our lives to care for this baby. From feeding times to bath times to changing nappies to keeping her entertained. Our lives have been redefined and reshaped by this little girl. On top of that, our budget has changed because of her. There's new things to buy. We've had to adjust our spending. Our schedules have changed because of her. Our car has changed. We now have a baby seat in the back. We've got a bassinet. We've got toys. We've got wet wipes for days. The car is full of all this baby stuff. Shell and I's topics of conversation have changed as a couple. We talk about things we never spoke about before. The books we read have changed. The things we do or how we do them have changed. Every time we leave the house, it looks different because now we've got a little baby that we need to think of too. Everything has changed for us in light of August because now we are working out what it means to be parents. And that's exactly the same in Philippians 2. That, that's the same for us as followers of Jesus. We need to work out our salvation just as intentionally and as radically as we're working out our parenthood. Or you might be working out your career or a relationship or something else. Because in Jesus, everything has changed. We've got a new identity, a new salvation, new responsibilities. We have a new king that we serve and we're part of a new kingdom. 
Our lives have been totally redefined by Jesus. So following Jesus has changed everything. And it is my job. It's your job. It's my responsibility. It's my privilege to work out my salvation in my life. That's something that I've got to do, that, that you've got to do. And Paul continues after saying that and writes, For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Now, I love that Paul put those two verses side by side like this because it shows the tension of these two things. You know, some Christians think that their faith is entirely up to them and their hard work and effort, whereas others kind of get laid back. They put their feet up, they kick down, they just say, oh, it's all up to God. You know, God will change me, God will lead me, God will guide me, God will do everything. But here Paul shows us that our faith and our transformation into the image of Jesus is about both God's work and our work together. It's, it's both and, not either or. And let me start with our work. 1 Timothy 4 verse 7 says, train yourself for godliness. I love that. That's our responsibility. Train yourself for godliness, which is just like us going to the gym. In fact, the word for train there in Greek is the word gymnasio, if I'm saying it right, which is where we get our word for gymnasium from. We train ourselves for godliness. We train ourselves to get fit in the gym. Now, if you want to get fit and healthy and you get a gym contract, it requires you doing something. You know, you need to go out there, you need to get the contract, sign up, pay your money, and then you need to actually show up at the gym. You need to set your alarm early, get in your car, drive there, get out, go inside, get changed, do all of that. And then you need to work hard. You need a plan of what you're going to do. And then you need to work hard in the gym to get fit. That's our responsibility. And similarly, for each one of us, we need a, a plan for our lives to train for godliness. Whatever that looks like for you, it's, it's a plan that you stick to and live out. A plan that includes prayer and Bible study and involvement in church community and other spiritual disciplines. You see, we'll never accidentally fall into getting fit without putting together a plan without changing what we do and what we eat and whatever else needs to happen. And similarly, with working out our salvation, we're never going to fall into just working this out and growing in our faith unless we're intentional about it. We need to train if we want to grow up in Jesus. Now, as I say that, I know that some of you are feeling pretty tired. 2020 has been a lot, and I think the thought of training for godliness can feel a bit overwhelming. It's just like another thing and we're like a bit apathetic and lethargic and drained and emotionally spent this year. I get that. I think the good news of this passage is we're not alone in this. This is not just up to our own effort because it's also God who works in us to will and to work according to his good purpose. So what about God's work? Well, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is God's work in our lives, you know, changing our will, changing our hearts, changing what we're passionate about, changing the way we think, all of that. And He changes what we do. And it's all by His grace. He's working in us by grace to change. God is at work in us, changing us from the inside out. And we're called to work on our lives, to work out our salvation from the outside in. And the reality is that the only reason we can even do that is because of God's grace at work in our lives. It's a beautiful partnership between us and God to grow in our faith. 
Now, for those watching this today, where you think maybe you're too much of a mess, you know, you're just hearing this going, Grant, training for godliness, like, I don't even know where to start. My life is too messy. I, I just feel overwhelmed. And maybe you think also, it's not just about your work in your life. You think, God's not going to want to. Like, God's not going to want to get involved in my life. It's too much of a mess. I'm a real fixer-upper. Well, respectfully, you're so wrong. God is into a good renovation project. If you don't believe me, just read the Bible. Read some of the characters in the Old and New Testament. They were real fixer-uppers. God really had to get involved in their lives. And if you were here with all of us at Harbor City this evening, I would say, look at the people around you. Some of them have got crazy stories of God's renovation and redemption in their lives. God won't give up on you. God won't give up on you. He's already paid the highest price for your life. And even if it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of effort from his side, there's a lot of setbacks. Even if the work is slow, God is committed to you. He's committed to his purposes in your lives. And God will never give up on you, even if you give up on yourself. But as we work out our salvation, Paul writes this, Philippians 2 verse 14, Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. When I read that and was preparing for tonight, I thought, um, what interesting words. <laughs> Why does Paul choose to speak to us about grumbling and arguing? I, I probably would have chosen something else to speak to the Philippian church about. And Paul writes it this way. He says, do everything without grumbling and arguing. You know, everything. Paul is saying that their entire lives should be redefined and changed by their relationship with Jesus. So he says, do everything without grumbling and arguing, because this is part of what it looks like to work out your salvation. Our salvation should affect how we respond to people and situations and things and circumstances. You know, we should respond differently in light of what Jesus has done for us. And I say that because how we respond doesn't just reflect us. It, it reflects him. It reflects the one that we represent in this world. So our salvation, working out our salvation, should affect our response to things and the way we speak. Now, why does Paul specifically call out the temptation that we have to grumble? Well, one obvious reason is that working out your salvation is difficult, you know. Learning to walk as a disciple of Jesus, being one of his followers, requires obedience to him and learning a new way. Discipleship isn't quick. It's not like microwavable. You just pop it in and pop, 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 it's good to go. Pursuing holiness and practicing hospitality and living generously and sharing the gospel and loving others, even loving our enemies, all of this can be tough and it can give us reason to complain. Eugene Peterson actually calls Christianity a long obedience in the same direction. You know, I'm all for a quick sprint. I don't know about a long, lifelong endurance race, but that's what our faith is. So that's the first thing. But the second thing, and you might not have picked this up, but this passage we're in tonight is absolutely full of references to the Old Testament. For instance, just in this short seven-verse passage, Paul is referencing Exodus 16, Numbers 14, 16, 17, and 28, Deuteronomy 32, Genesis 17, and Daniel 12. There's a lot of reference going on in here. So I'm saying that because Paul is very intentional and thoughtful as he writes. 
Now, this is a textured, layered, well-thought-out argument and letter to the Philippians. And it shows us Paul's incredible knowledge and value of the Scriptures. I, I hope you are someone who is reading and studying and prayerfully working through the Bible because it is one of the most important disciplines we can have to grow in our faith. But one of the other things Paul's writing here shows us as he links back to the Old Testament and to the Old Testament people of God is that we are part of a story, the, the story of God that's been going on for thousands of years. And yes, we are the people of God, Harbor City, but we follow in a long line of the story of the people of God following him throughout the generations. Now, I'm not going to go into all of those references tonight, but grumbling and arguing points us back to the Israelites in the desert walking between Egypt and the Promised Land. You know, they, they grumble in Exodus 13 against Moses and Aaron, their leaders, who are leading them into the promises of God, into the good things that are ahead. They grumble about food. You know, they grumble about not having water. They grumble about not having meat, even though God provides for them everything they need. Now, they're also walking in a desert every single day. It ends up being 40 years or it could have been an 11-day journey. And obviously in the desert, it's really hot. They've got no aircon. They're getting pretty sunburnt. They're walking a lot. They're not enjoying this vibe. And this is so crazy. They grumble and look back to the good old days they had when they were slaves in Egypt. You know, where they suffered working unreasonable hours, seven days a week, um, 24 hours a day, you know, for 365 days a year. They didn't get holidays. They didn't get breaks. In fact, the expectations the Egyptians put on them were astronomical. You know, any HR department would lose their minds over all of this. But God is with them in the midst of their walk through the desert. Even though they're looking back to Egypt, this time of slavery so fondly, God is with them in the desert and He's leading them into the promised land. He's leading them into the inheritance God has for them. He's with them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He's literally visible. They know God is in their midst. And God has performed the greatest miracles this world has ever seen to get them out of slavery and into freedom. You know, God has appeared to them in power. He's shown His might. He's set them free. He's parted the Red Sea. He's led them through on dry land. He's set them free from the Egyptian soldiers who came after them. All of this, they've seen God. They've seen the miracles. They've seen His power. But they still don't trust Him with the small stuff of their everyday lives. Stuff like water, stuff like food, stuff like meat, stuff like their desires. And I would make fun of them for being so pathetic if I didn't realize that I am so often just like them. You know, I, I don't trust God with details of my life, even though God has proved himself faithful again and again and again for the last, what, 22 years that I've been learning to walk with him. I'm just like the Israelites. And that's why in Philippians 2, speaking to the Philippians and to us, Paul includes this passage about grumbling because he knows what we're like. He knows what our hearts are like. He, he knows that we don't trust God in the way that we should, that we're learning to trust Him more and more. And He knows that when we grumble and complain like this, it's a terrible witness to the people around us as they watch us. Actually, if we cut out the grumbling and we trust in God, it shines light to those around us about what God is like and about the goodness of the gospel. Working out our salvation means that we should respond differently and speak differently because of Jesus and what He's done for us. And we should choose to trust Him, the big things and the small stuff of our life, even as we walk through difficult times 
which is slightly relevant to us in 2020, I'm sure you'd agree. Working out our salvation should make us different. It should make us stand out from the people around us, like, as Paul says here, stars in a dark sky. Now, this idea of stars or lights or shining into darkness is definitely a reference to Jesus and the fact that we represent him. Jesus said this about himself in John 8 verse 12. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And Jesus' expectation for us is that as his followers, people who are filled with the light of life, that actually we would live and shine that light and that life into the world around us. He says to us again in Matthew 5, verse 14 to 16, You are the light of the world. He said that of himself. Now he says it to us, the church. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. For me, when I kind of drifted from God and came back to the church at the age of 17, the thing that like really struck me and made me take Jesus seriously and get excited about church, because I came back in with like my arms folded, pretty cynical, pretty negative, pretty critical and unsure of this whole church thing. The thing that made me take Jesus seriously was watching Christians around me at church. I'd watch the way people worship. I, you know, I was watching the whole time. I, I watched the way they worshipped and the way they spoke to one another and to me, the way they acted, the decisions they made, all of those things I was watching and processing. Is this genuine? And I was witnessing this community of people that I came into shining the light of Jesus, just like we're called to do in Philippians and Matthew and all over the place. Christians are called to live in the light of Jesus. You know, we've left darkness behind. We've taken off unrighteousness and put on righteousness. We've taken off sin and put on the ways of Jesus. And we have this new role of shining his light through our good works, through our example, through our speech, through everything, shining the grace and truth and love and joy and peace and power of Jesus to the people around us, that they might get a taste of God and be impacted by it, seeing his kingdom at work and giving glory to him. Practically, how do we not grumble and how do we shine our light? Now, if this is what Paul's calling us to do, how do we do it? Well, he gives us a very simple answer in verse 16. He says, by holding firm to the word of life, by holding firm to the word of life, by holding firm to the gospel. Now, probably my best holding firm uh, story I've got is, story of hiking with some friends years ago we went spelunking in the berg together now if you're not a word nerd like i am spelunking is exploring caves you know we hired a cave and we went on this four or so hour hike and we got to our cave and it was just like so beautiful up there in the mountain we, we looked out over this beautiful view and we stayed in that camp uh, in that cave for two nights and it was really good but if you know me, you know I'm more of an indoor cat than an outdoor cat. And Justin and Mike, these guys I was with, they were also more indoor cat types. So we made some mistakes on this hike. And the one mistake we made was that the next morning we got up early because of the lights and everything. And we climbed above our cave just to watch the sunrise and enjoy the view. 
but we went out without shoes and we went out just in our baggies and we got stuck above our cave. You know, we couldn't get down. So what we needed to do was hike high up the mountain, find this long winding path and then get back down to the bottom so we could climb back up to our cave. This was at like 5 a.m. or whatever it was. Now, that was hard. It was hard work. But part of that climbing up the mountain to get to this winding path meant we actually had to climb up a pretty high vertical cliff face. And if we had fallen off while we were climbing, we probably would have fallen to our deaths. You know, I don't want to over-exaggerate, but it just is what it is. So this was the scariest moment of my life. I, I don't like heights. I was nervous doing this. Obviously, we didn't have ropes or anything. We just did our best. But I remember climbing up and each hold I made was really significant. You know, my life depended on these holds. Now, this was only a couple of meters we had to climb, but still. And I remember that final grip I had to take was like a, a grassy tuft at the top as I pulled myself over. And I remember just trying to just make sure that this was firm enough, it, it, the roots were solid enough, that this wasn't going to yank out and I was going to fall backwards. Because this was the most important hold of my life. And spoiler alert, obviously it was fine. I climbed, I got to the top. But if that grass had let me down, I could have fallen to my death. And for me in that moment, what I held on to determined my future. What I was holding on to determined my future. Or another way of saying it, what I trusted in would shape the rest of my life. And that's what Paul is saying to us here in Philippians 2. He's saying, hold firm to the word of life. Let go of other things, man. Don't trust in them. Don't put your hope in them. Take hold of the gospel of God. Trust in it. Depend on it. Let go of other things. Take hold of the gospel with both hands. It will not let you down. It's a sure thing. And if you're watching this today and you're going, well, what is the gospel that I'm meant to take hold of? This is probably my favorite description or definition of it. The gospel is the good news that God, our Father, the Creator, out of His great love for us, has come to rescue us from sin, Satan, death, and hell, and to renew all things in and through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf to establish His kingdom through His people in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is for God's great glory and our profound joy. The invitation of Philippians 2 and Jesus tonight is, will you take hold of the word of life? Will you grab it with both hands? And if we do that, if we trust in and hold on to and build our life on the gospel of God, then we will not grumble, you know. We will be satisfied in Him. We'll be in awe of Him, like that entourage with Jordan, you know. We, we'll work out our, our salvation with fear and trembling, enjoying just being in His presence and being part of the glory of what He's doing. And we will shine like light in this world. A few weeks ago, I was at a bride with some family members and I spent some time with a, an uncle of mine who is probably dying over the next while. He, he doesn't have COVID or anything, but he hasn't been too well. And he is a Christian. He's always asked me about Harbour City and how we're doing. And when I see him, he always checks in about that. And as we said goodbye at the end of this briar, you know, he looked me in the eyes and he said, Grant, you need to preach the gospel. People need to hear it. People need hope at this time. And I, I love that moment because I just thought of this man, you know, nearing the end of his life, possibly, you know, after seven decades of life, you know, he's had time to reflect and think back on his life. And he's saying to me, Grant, you know what matters most. It's the gospel. It's Jesus. 
point people to him because they need him. They need hope. And Paul is in exactly the same situation as my uncle, you know. He's in prison, expecting to be martyred soon. And he's saying exactly what my uncle said to me that day. Verse 16 to 18, he says, Holding firm to the word of life. Trust in the gospel. He says, Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. See, what we see in Philippians 2 is that Paul is at peace, knowing that he's probably going to die soon, be executed and martyred. He's at peace. He's not grumbling. He's not complaining. If he gets killed and the Philippians are encouraged, then he's okay. He knows his king. He he knows Jesus. He knows Jesus was martyred for him, that Jesus gave up his life to serve him and us. And he doesn't mind, you know, if he has to follow in the same footsteps as his Lord and Savior, if he has to die in that same way and go and be with Jesus, he's okay. We talked about this recently. To Paul, to live as Christ and to die as gain. If he, if he lives, that's great. If he dies, that's okay. Paul is an example of someone who's taken hold of the gospel. And Paul has been working out his salvation for decades with fear and trembling. And in doing that, his life, shines so brightly to us through this letter as an example to the Philippians and to us. Paul is a man with no fear. He's not scared of dying. He's not scared of living. He's not scared of suffering. He considers it a privilege to die for Jesus or to live for Jesus or to suffer for Jesus. And he rejoices in the thought of being worthy to suffer for Jesus' name. The only thing that worries him, it's not life or death or suffering or anything like that, The only thing that worries him is that the Philippians and that you and I would not continue to hold firm to the gospel. If that happens, he can't rejoice. But if they do that, then he'll rejoice. And to us, Harbour City, today, I want to encourage you with this passage and to say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Take hold of the gospel. Don't, Don't grumble. Don't complain. You know, shine your light. Shine the light of Jesus through your life into the world around us, your friends and family and co-workers and neighbors. And we trust that they would take hold of the gospel too. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for everyone watching us at home this morning or this evening, whenever it is. I pray you would meet with them right now. I pray open our eyes to understand these truths more, to see the gospel, to see Jesus for who he really is. I pray in your power you would meet with people now. And save those who aren't following you yet. Save them right in this moment. Forgive them of sin. Wash them clean. Give them new life in Jesus. And for those who do love you and follow you, I thank you for power to follow. I thank you, Lord, for a fresh sense of your glory, that they would live in awe and wonder, that they would live with fear and trembling as they work out their salvation. And I just thank you, Holy Spirit, for your power to do this that we're not on our own, that you're at work in us to will and to work according to your good purpose. Amen.